Hello and welcome again to Fat Free Film. I'm Joel Marshall. And I'm Kamala Lopez Dawson, and we're sitting here with director George Hickenlooper, whose new film Factory Girl is out in the theaters right now, and who I've known since college. Yeah, we've known each other, for, I don't want to say how many years, but uh, we both were projectionists at the Yale Law School Film Society that was run by Bruce Cohen, who ended up producing American Beauty. Great guy, great producer. And I remember I bought you cigarettes, uh, Camilla, once. I, uh, I was a sucker for a pretty face, a beautiful girl as you are. And, uh, and uh, you, I came up to visit you, and you were like, hey, will you watch the film? I think it was North by Northwest, and you ran off to buy cigarettes. Oh, no, I went off and bought your cigarettes. Yeah, I- <laughs> that's even worse. <laughs> she suckered me. Into, that's right, I walked all the way to Wawa's and bought you cigarettes. <laughs> awesome. You. I appreciate that. Yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> so you have had a very interesting career so far. Yeah. And it's just getting started, really. Yeah. Well, tell us, I mean, you started out and, and you did some work for Roger Corman, right? Yes. I would, yeah, the early part of my career, um, I'm proud of everything I did. I mean, um, uh, has been kind of a film school for me. I've learned as I've gone, but I've learned sort of in, in the view of the public, so um, which is always risky. I've never been a big advocate of uh, film school, but we can you know get into that later. Um, uh, but yes, I did start off with Roger Corman. I uh, you know we both went to Yale College. I um, flirted with the idea of going to film school, but didn't really have enough money to do that. Um, my father wasn't going to support me unless I you know went to law school or something like that. So um, I uh, moved out to L.A. and with no connections. And uh, I had a roommate from Yale named Trevor Tarr who had a job at the L.A. Times. And he and his family graciously let me live in their um, sort of their studio in the backyard for about six months so I could get collect, you know, get my thoughts together about how I was going to proceed to be a movie director because there is no formula. And um, I had a horrible job at Kinko's Copy. It was the graveyard shift and uh, fortunately, I had a manager who liked to get stoned on pot every night, so it was pretty, wasn't uh, it was pretty laissez-faire, pretty easygoing job. And um, and ultimately, I got tired of that. I was also waited tables at Hamburger Hamlet, and pretty much it was it was aggravating because I had all these classmates from college going to Wharton and Harvard Law School, and I was you know had the graveyard shift to Kinkos. Um, <laughs> So, um, so I said, I really have to really, so this lasted about a year and, and I'd known about Roger Corman and, um, ultimately I just sort of camped out in his, in his, in his lobby. And if you don't know who Roger Corman is, he was a B movie producer who, um, who started a lot of careers, started Coppola, uh, Coppola's first film, Dementia 13, Scorsese did one of his early films, Boxcar Bertha, Peter Bogdanovich did Targets, uh, Monty Hellman did, um, the shooting with Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson started with Corman, um, Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper. Everyone basically in the 70s started with Corman. He he sort of functioned, uh, he served the same function that the Sundance Film Festival st- sort of serves now, I guess. He, you mean the Film Institute? The Sundance Film Festival. In other words, young filmmakers um, getting exposure to mainstream Hollywood. He allowed that to young aspiring filmmakers to make films, and he offered them exposure. I mean, the Sundance Film Festival doesn't finance films. Or the Sundance Institute, yeah, um, does develop films. But uh, granted, Corman's films were much more sort of of the exploitation variety. um, But still, um, independent film didn't really exist in the 19... I mean, it did exist. I mean, people like Sam Fuller were sort of mavericks. But... Um, independent film for, for young people didn't really exist in the 60s so it was if you were a filmmaker you'd go to Roger Corman and if he believed in your passion or your script and if it subscribed to sort of what he needed to sell a movie sort of exploitation elements um, then um, for example Peter Bogdanovich wanted to make a film and Roger Corman said well I have Boris Karloff who at that point was you know was making only B movies I Boris Karloff he needs to, he owes me a week you know, um, uh, a week of, on a film shoot, and Peter basically wrote a script around Boris Karloff, which became Targets. And then Peter got exposure to um, Burt Schneider, who then financed the last picture show. So it was a way to get exposure. So knowing all this information about Roger, I uh, 
And then and this is the late 80s, early 90s, and Roger's career was starting to wane then. I mean, he didn't really have the same... He didn't really have the same... Uh, I mean, Sun, the Sundance Film Festival was sort of coming in, unto its own, and he didn't really uh, serve that same function. He did a little bit like James Cameron had started with Corman. Um, I don't remember what he, film he did for Corman. I think was it Terminator, the original Terminator? I don't know if it was the original Terminator, but something before that. He was a driver for Roger Corman, did, did all kinds of transportation for Roger Corman in the 80s. So it was still going on. It was waning a little bit. So, But anyway, it was, I didn't, had no other options. So I went to Corman, and, um, and he offered me a job. And I started off as a production assistant and uh, made coffee for him. I ended up driving a wardrobe trailer, even though I didn't have a license to drive anything over, over larger than a station wagon. Which ultimately ended up with once the uh, and he was so cheap too. I mean, I literally was driving this wardrobe trailer home one night and started to disintegrate on on the on the Hollywood freeway. I was looking in the rearview mirror and all this wardrobe was blowing all over the freeway. <laughs> um, so then Roger put me in something else other than transportation, um, and um, ultimately uh, Roger um, uh, introduced me to Christopher Coppola, who is Francis's nephew. And Christopher is Nicholas Coppola's, or Nick Cage's brother. And this is before Nick was a big star, and I befriended them. Um, was going to do some storyboards for Christopher Coppola for a movie he was doing for Roger, which never ended up getting made, or did get made, I think, but I ended up doing the storyboards for some reason. But at the time, um, all, well, I actually could go back a little bit. While I was working for Roger, as a production assistant, I befriended Timothy Bottoms, who's an actor, who starred in Peter Bogdanovich as the last picture show. And Tim was doing a, a low-budget Roger picture, and I guess Tim was impressed with my knowledge of the last picture show. I'd written a paper on the last picture show while I was at Yale. And, um, and Tim and I became fast friends, and Tim was being approached by Bogdanovich at the time to do a sequel to the last picture show called Texasville. And I proposed the idea to Tim to allow me to direct a documentary about the cast reuniting and, and sort of deconstruct The Last Picture Show, which to me was fascinating. You know, Larry McMurtry had written a novella called The Last Picture Show about people he'd grown up in a small town of Archer City, Texas. And then Bogdanovich had gone there in 1970 to make The Last Picture Show. So you hear that you have this young cast coming to this town, playing characters based on people actually who were still living in the town. And then, how, and then the actors' own lives sort of being colored by the characters they were portraying. So there's a lot of kind of inter interesting sort of semiotic things happening there. Um, and Tim was really into that idea. So um, for one reason or another, Peter allowed me to do this documentary. Um, and as I was putting this thing together, it was a very small budget. My first professional film allowed me to quit my 9-to-5 job at Kinko's. Uh, well, and allowed me to quit working for Roger, which was a relief for a while, and um, and uh, and then I was cutting it together. I showed it to Christopher Coppola, and he said, "Oh, my aunt Eleanor Coppola wants to do something with all this footage she shot in the Philippines of Apocalypse Now," and I said, "Great, let me picture this idea." And uh, it, now, now, when you say let me picture this idea, did you already have in your mind, or did you have any idea what? kind of film might be made from yes, that Yes, I did. Stuff? And she had been talking to another producer named George Zaloom, um, who was uh, a really bright, brilliant producer who was teamed up with Les Mayfield, and they were doing EPKs, which are electronic press kits. They were doing, in the late 80s, they were doing a lot of behind the scenes. They had done like Raiders of the Lost Ark, and they were out of USC film school. And she was talking to them about making a deal at Showtime. Christopher introduced me to Ellie, and I think their sort of idea initially was to do kind of a one-hour behind the scenes of how they blew up Dolong Bridge, which to me would be completely uninteresting 13 years after the fact. I was more interested in a sort of a very visceral deconstruction about how Coppola was losing his mind, which would then be very similar to my Bogdanovich documentary, which ultimately um, is about Peter sort of coming apart emotionally while making The Last Picture Show. And that film, by the way, is on DVD. It's called Picture This, The Times of Peter Bogdanovich in Archer City, Texas. If you go to Amazon.com, you can order it. I actually think it's, one of, I actually think it's better than Hearts of Darkness because it's a very intimate look at this filmmaker and his community of actors and, and the small town and how their lives really became topsy-turvy while making the movie. Bogdanovich left his wife, Polly Platt, fell in love with Sybil Shepard, very similar to what went on in the story of The Last Picture Show. 
Um, anyway, so Ellie uh, liked my sort of rough cut of picture of this, the Bogdanovich documentary, and they brought and they liked my take, and they brought me in in Showtime. Um, Steve Hewitt, who's the son of Don Hewitt, who started 60 Minutes, was running Showtime at the time. He liked my take, and he doubled our budget and said this could be really great and went from being a 60-minute behind-the-scenes to being a 90-minute real sort of look at Coppola. And that, um, and that was really the movie that sort of put me on the map at age 26. It was, it was great. We went to the Cannes Film Festival at a theatrical release. And... Um, and uh, I want to allow you to ask a question, but I can continue yeah, if you no, want me to. I mean, it, that that movie we just we watched it again the other night, and it's really just a remarkable film. And it it's like you had such amazing access. I mean, did all those people sign off when she was filming them? Mm-hmm. They had to probably sign waivers at that yes. point. So at I mean, so at a certain point, they couldn't really say, you know, Martin Sheen couldn't say, I don't want to look like a crazy drunk freak. You know. Yeah, well, Marty was really remarkable because Marty, um, at the time uh, when he made Apocalypse Now, was an alcoholic, and since then has been sober. And for him, it was very much part of the twelve-step program. Um, in other words, Heart of Hearts of Darkness and participating in the documentary was very much a, a catharsis for him because it was. A, he told me emotionally it was allowed him to sort of let go of that really dark period in his life. He was getting divorced. Um, if you watch Hearts of Darkness, for those who don't know what it is, it's a 90-minute documentary about the making of Apocalypse Now. And it's it's really a, a must-see movie. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really intense. It's, it's, they show it in film schools quite a bit. If you want to, if you're an aspiring filmmaker, it's absolutely a film you should see. It's out of print now, and I'm trying to get Coppola to put out on DVD, but it is still available on VHS. If you look on eBay, you can buy it used generally. We rented it at um, at what's Rocket, Rocket Video. Video. Oh, Rocket Video has it. Well, that's cool. And I know that uh, um, Videotech in South Pasadena has a, a bootleg DVD. Really? I looked for it on the Blockbuster online. They didn't have it. No, no. Yeah, They're bootlegs. Other movies, but not that one. Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, so um, it's a really good film about the making of a movie and. Um, and uh, to answer your question about the releases, yes, we had everyone's release. We couldn't find, um, at the time, we couldn't find Harvey Keitel's release. And Harvey Keitel um, was originally cast as Willard in Apocalypse Now, and then Francis Coppola fired him. And so um, we had all these wonderful footage that Francis had shot with Harvey Keitel as Willard that we wanted to put into the documentary. And um, it's a long story, but um, I went to Harvey, and Harvey initially was like, still was a little bitter about it and was and this is what 15 years after the fact at the time and it's like well talk well maybe i want to find out the truth about why why francis fired me and i think harvey was looking for people to say oh well harvey just you know was a great guy and he just was not right for the part but what people said was well harvey was a pain in the ass and and uh, we didn't want to deal with him and and when harvey asked me that i was i was honest with him and he goes well fuck francis that fat asshole and <laughs> and since harvey and i and actually what's great about harvey cartel i love him dearly he's a very good friend he um he called me up i hadn't talked to him in years and he called me up out of the blue and said i love factory girl it's fantastic it's the best thing i and he um he took me out to dinner and just to you know it was very so it was exciting because I'm a big fan of his but um, getting back to so after after Khan and that big splash that the film made what what did you do after that well it was interesting because it was tough for me to um, it was tough I thought you know I had it I was home free I I thought I I wanted to do features I always wanted to do narrative features I never really been interested in doing um, documentaries I sort of got into it by accident because it was, an, it was an option that I had open to me so I said I want to make films so I'll start with documentaries and now I really love documentaries but the t- the, I never was my intention so I wanted to, after Hearts of Darkness I wanted to make features and none of the studios were really willing to give me a feature because there was some confusion about Eleanor Coppola and involvement versus my involvement I think the perception because Eleanor did all the talk shows to promote the film she was on uh, Johnny Carson David Letterman they didn't invite me to be on those because Eleanor was Francis's wife um, and it's just more people are more interested in hearing what Francis's wife has to say than they are George Hickenlooper 26 year old so um, 
who had just worked at Kinko's. <laughs> so um, that's the reality. And uh, I was like, great. So the studio's like, well, didn't Eleanor direct that? And I was like, well, Eleanor shot all the footage in the Philippines. And people would say, well, why didn't you do that? Because I was, you know, I was 10, 11 years old. You know. <laughs> that's living in St. Louis, right? Um, <laughs> That's uh, not an excuse. Yeah, no, I was living in Palo Alto. Um, uh, and so, uh, but I did all the interviews and cut it together. And I'm well, cre- yeah, you, cr- you created uh, the film as it is, which right. is, I mean, it really has a very specific point of view. Yeah, and, and, and Eleanor, what, with all due respect to her, she's a wonderful woman. I don't think, I think the footage lay dormant for so long. It may Maybe because Francis didn't, want to do anything with it but also I think the reality was that Eleanor just didn't have the wherewithal or, or the real the passion to do something with it but I, I mean I could see the perspective of somebody in her position is very difficult to be objective yeah exactly because she's her husband so I basically helped her tell her story I didn't help her I told her story for her basically um, and so so I was always fighting that well and, and it was like no and then so but I, I could get um, a job, go back to Roger Corman, which is what I did. Roger had introduced me to Brad Cravoy, who he'd worked with. So Roger and Brad, mostly Brad, Roger had very little to do with it, actually, in the end. Uh, I did ended up doing um, a script that was written by another Yaley, Matt Greenberg, a Civil War vampire movie named Grey Knight, um, which uh, had a great cast. Uh, Matt LeBlanc uh, was in it just before Friends, and uh, Billy Bob Thornton, one of his early films. And uh, Martin Sheen did a part for me, and uh, it was Corbin Burnson and David Arquette, and had a nice cast. But it was a movie about vampires during the Civil War. It was, it's a really weird, low-budget B movie. It has some nice moments, but it's just pretty god awful. Um, <laughs> but it was, you know, it was definitely um, a good learning experience. And um, what kind of budget? I don't know. It was eight hundred thousand. Yeah. What's it, what time period did you shoot it in? And what's the uh, well, time frame of one of these movies? Well, th- this one was what t- I mean. Well, this movie was set in the 1860s, but I remember shooting it during <laughs> during the Rodney um, King trial, and because it had a lot of issues of race in it, um, I remember <laughs> the riots broke out um, actually right before he started shooting, and about two weeks later, um, you know, when things quieted down, we started shooting, and I had a scene in the desert which is sort of a flashback the pr- the main protagonist in the film is is uh is, has the, there's this african curse that is somehow tied to these vampires i actually don't really remember but uh <laughs> but uh <laughs> tried to block it out of my mind but uh it is on dvd god if god blow, god have mercy on your soul if you rent it but <laughs> um there's a funny story. I actually, t- actually, I'll, I'll save the story if you rent it. Um, I did. Uh, John Favreau had a show called Dinner for Five. Yeah, yeah. And um, I told the story on Dinner for Five, and it's actually on the DVD, so you can go rent it. But it's a funny story about how we had to recruit a lot of um, uh, African American extras, and and I wanted them authentic. And our talent coordinator took that mean, meant that literally. So he actually went down into South Central two weeks after the riot and brought about two dozen really angry black men. <laughs> set and fortunately my ad was african-american so he was able to deal with it but it was yeah it was uh, so it's kind of uh, life imitating art or art imitating life uh. but anyway what the good thing that came out of that was i had a great relationship with billy bob thornton and then billy bob uh, at the time i had a great relationship and he had this great character carl childers um the character from sling blade and um he had been performing this character uh, in a kind of multiple character variety show he was doing and he did the character for me the monologue where the character admits that he killed his mother and I said we've got to do this as a movie do this character as a film he, is, he wasn't sure he was on, kind of on the fence about whether it would sustain a feature but I said this I said you know I said you'll win an Academy Award if you do this character it's one of the best you know since uh, best characters since uh, you know To Kill a Mockingbird and Anyway, so um, he. But I don't understand. Where was he performing these strange? He had a monologue. show called Pearls Before Swine, and um, it was um, he performed at um, West Hollywood and small venues, Santa Monica. I didn't. I only saw it that. once, and um, 
And so he wrote a short script and I worked on the short script as well with the idea that we do a short film and then take it to Sundance and then make a feature. And um, the short is really, really good. Yeah, the, it's it's so interesting because you do something in that short that then since then has been done. Um, I've seen in a couple of other places, which is you start the movie out and you're watching the movie and you think it's about this guy and halfway through the movie yeah, it becomes about it's about the other guy that's been sitting there quietly <laughs> listening to him it's just great yeah, that's what happens in the beginning of the feature as well yeah right? well the the, the the um the feature i mean basically the short is the first act of, of the feature and um you can rent that on dvt too it's called some folks call it a sling blade and there's a long somewhat self-serving on my part documentary explaining what happened between billy bob and i which is very personal but I, which I felt like needed to get out on the table. Well, what happened? Um, well, to make a long story short, um, Billy Bob Thornton is very talented, and uh, I do hope to work with him again. But at the time, at that point in his life, and at that point in my life, we just weren't getting along, and um, and um, we both uh, there was a lot of um, verbal abuse, and uh, I just felt like I didn't want to maintain that type of relationship and, and I'm sure he had issues with me as well um, anyway so but we, we get along fine now but we parted ways and he went on and you know developed into a feature and did quite well with it and, uh, and the feature is quite good but if you if you watch the short it's uh, it's more of the direction I would have taken the feature I liked the feature very much I felt it was a little bit watered down from what we initially intended to do the short is very dark and the character is very dark, and Billy Bob made the character much more likable. And I think I understand why he wanted it more accessible to a bigger audience. Um, at the time I made this short, I was young and naive, and I probably would have made it very dark. Um, but um, both are very good, and both are very different. But it's interesting to compare the two, because Billy Bob's performance in, I believe, in the short, is much better and more compelling than it is in the feature. Um, and um, who directed the feature, Billy? Billy Bob directed it himself. Yeah. And what did you? What did? What happened with the short after it was made? Um, did it help get the feature made? Absolutely. The short, absolutely. Um, they made the feature because Larry Meistrich and Bob Gossett, um, shooting gallery, saw the short. There's no, yeah, absolutely. The short was a big success at Sundance too, and it helped me get television. It helped me get another feature. It got me a feature I did with an um, HBO movie. I did with Naomi Watts. But um, uh, it's, career-wise, it certainly would have been much wiser for me to do maintain my relationship with Billy Bob and sort of stomach the problems we had. But uh, at the time, I felt like I couldn't do that. And at the time, were you guys working collaboratively on the feature script? Well, no, Billy Bob wrote the feature script on his own. I gave him a lot of ideas that I th believe and feel strongly that he used because um, he when we were discussing it, he was definitely going one direction that he didn't end up going in. He ended up going the direction that we discussed together. Um, but I feel like, I mean, that's his movie. There's no question. I mean, there's a little bit of me in it, but I mean, there's a lot of me in the short for sure. And the short is also has a great supporting cast. J.T. Walsh, who passed away, is one of my favorite character actors. So I did two other pictures with The Low Life and Persons Unknown. And also Jefferson Mays, who went to Yale with us, who won the Tony for Best Actor just two years ago for, um, for I'm Doug, My Own Doug, Wife. Doug Wright's play. Yeah. Who also, who Doug, Doug was in the theater program with me. Oh, wow. Wow. So there's a lot of us um, working. Yale Mafia. <laughs> um, so I, I want to yeah. know what happened after that. Okay, so you made the short. Yeah. And then um, the short was a big success at Sundance. Yes. Right? And then you guys had your falling out. Was it after it was a big success at Sundance? Uh, we had uh, well we had a falling out bef well actually I mean to be quite frank um, Billy Bob really disliked the short um, we had Billy Bob was on a TV show called Hearts of Fire at the time with John Ritter and um, Billy Bob was becoming was on a popular TV show and it, um, I feel like it went to his head a little bit and he uh, basically we had it before uh, the short went to Sundance we had a big fight over the monologue um, he uh, he had wanted to shoot the monologue entirely in close up and um, I felt like a two and a half minute monologue completely in close up um, cinematically would um, distance the audience rather than 
bring them in. And I shot it. Uh, I, I shot it basically to start off in a real wide shot. It slowly dollies in on Billy Bob, and it dollies away from the reporter, played by Molly Ringwald, actually, in the, in the short. Which I remember that shot as being extremely powerful. Right. Thank you. And uh, But just, you know, to make Billy Bob happy, I sh- also shot entirely in close-up. And uh, at the time, he, was, he said, would you mind shooting this way? It's fine. But then when I was cutting the picture again, he said, you're going to use the close-up, right? And I said, well, no, I, I, it doesn't work. And also, the, the close-up had been uh, damaged. The negative had been damaged, or it had been um, flash-framed. So the close, there was, like, light leaks. And uh, Billy Bob suddenly said, oh, you sabotaged it deliberately. I said, I didn't. And, I, and he said, even if it was perfect, I wouldn't use it anyway. Because I feel like, and we got in this big fight, and I was like, accusing him, you want this short to be your acting reel, you're not interested. Because at the time, Billy Bob really wasn't interested in writing and directing. I mean, I think you see that now, he's not really pursuing it. And, um, and uh, well, I can't say he wasn't interested in writing and directing. I mean, he was interested in writing, because duh, he'd always written, he wrote, wrote with Tom Epperson, he wrote One False Move. But I don't think he was ever really interested in writing on his own at the time. I, he, I think he, he eventually did. Um, but uh, we just, uh, we had this big fight about the close-up, and I said, it doesn't exist. And he said, you sabotage it. And I was like, and he said, the movie sucks. Molly Ringwald is terrible. I said, Molly Ringwald is not terrible. Molly Ringwald is good. And I just, I like to, I like to cast actors against type because I think it's interesting. I think I did it very successfully later with Mick Jagger um, and Man from Legion Fields. Um, I did it with Jimmy Fallon and Factory Girl. I think audiences have to sort of dismiss Saturday Night Live when they watch Jimmy Fallon and Factory Girl. They have to dismiss Star Wars if they watch Hayden Christensen and Factory Girl. And if they could take that out of their mind, they would see they give very good performances. Mm-hmm. And if you can take Pretty in Pink out of your mind, you'll see that Molly Ringwald is quite good. Anyway, and, and but Billy Bob, had, you know, when we were on the set, Billy Bob thought Molly Ringwald was great, but he was just using any ammunition he could against me. And so we had this big fight, so I just stopped talking to him. And he actually, at one point, one of his his buddies, his cronies tried to steal the negative and I was like whoa so I just stopped talking to him and then the film I mean and then quite and then the film got into Sundance and then Billy Bob was suddenly my best friend again (laughs) (laughs) and that was great I was like okay I'm willing to like forget all that try to steal the negative okay no problem and uh, we went to Sundance and uh, then we started pitching the feature around town um, to different people and uh, and then he did the abuse of nature of our relationship started coming into play and I was like forget it, I'm not going through this again and that's where it ended but again as I said we're, we're on very good terms I mean you know and maybe we'll work together again I would you know it's ancient history we're both young right attributed to youth youthful indiscretion <laughs> I, I, I just want to jump I'm just going to jump ahead because you were talking about performances and both Joel and I felt like Guy Pierce's performance in your film is is a the best Andy Warhol that's ever oh, been done. Funny. I mean, he really is remarkable yeah, in the it's film. It's very hard to uh, even see him as Guy Pierce, which Yo. is a great credit to what he did in that film. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks. I mean, Guy Pierce um, really doesn't need a lot of help from me. I mean, he's, he's a really tremendous actor. And I think my strength as a director, particularly in my relation with Guy Pierce, was allow him to, you know, give him the security and the comfort that he could do this. Um, without it feeling like a, you know, remind him that he's not doing a caricature, but he's portraying a real, a real Andy Warhol. Because it's, you know, in, 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 you know, one, one of our concerns from the beginning with Factory Girl was that, you know, Warhol ultimately became a caricature of himself, like most iconic people do when they become older, um, and actors tend to portray him that way um, because it's easy. And we really wanted to humanize him. Guy wanted to humanize him, and um, and we wanted to portray him in a way that we know our our research, my research, had shown that he was, you know, at the time when he was just starting to break into public view, he was still deeply insecure about his relationship or his his his, play, his status in the fine art world, as opposed to Rauschenberg and Lichtenstein, who are considered very serious artists. But Andy still had the stigma of being having been a commercial artist. And so I think that affected the biographies I read, the people I researched, spoke to, Bridget Berlin and the factory, Gerard Malenga, people who had worked intimately with Andy. All said, we really captured Andy perfectly, pitch perfect at that time in his life, that he was 
He was nasty. He was petulant. He was deeply insecure, and he was extremely cruel to Edie. And um, and well, I think he he was he was in love. With, I mean, he was, he was clearly in he, love. He with was him. deeply in love with Edie. And 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 I mean, if we're gonna talk about Factory Girl more in depth, I mean, one thing that my research led to um, was psychologically, Andy was deeply affected by his mother. He, uh, you know, he was one of three children, grew up in, impoverished in, in Pittsburgh, grew up in a slum in Pittsburgh. His parents were Slovakian immigrants. Um, Andy was the youngest son, was doted on by the mother the most. They saved all the money so Andy could go to art school. He barely scraped by. You know, Andy graduated from Carnegie Mellon. He was either going to go become a teacher or go to New York. He decided to go to New York really against his mother's wishes. His mother immediately wanted him to become a teacher, get married, have a family, and live next door. And Andy was like... You know, and Andy was, was a homosexual, Andy, but his mother, that was something he couldn't even consider even addressing with his mother, who's so old world, right? And you got a brilliant actress for I that. Am, uh, I'm Beth Grant, fantastic. And um, thank you. And so, so uh, Andy uh, moves to New York, realizes how much he misses his mother, needs her, needs her affection, needs her needs needs her her maternal warmth that she's offered him basically his mother drowned him i mean a lot of homosexual men have overbearing mothers i mean that's sort of the dynamic that exists throughout history this is the same this is truthful as well they have these love-hate relationships with them. they 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 can't have a bond with their mother yet they because they're you know the, the mother doesn't necessarily accept them on their se sexual terms but yet they need their mother's domination they need their mother so Andy brings his mother to New York. The mother lives with Andy, literally in, in Andy's basement until the day she dies. If you look at Andy's early works, women's shoes, even the Brillo boxes, Campbell's soup cans are things that his mother brought into the house. And you had that in the film. Yeah. I noticed when she opens the cabinets, you see all the cans. Yeah. And so on a very subconscious level or subtextual level of the movie, the point I was trying to make was that Andy's mother wanted him to get married. Andy met Edie. I think subconsciously, on the research I did, Andy saw Edie as the one possibility of a woman that he could fall in love with, maybe not sexually, but um, deeply, because Edie represented everything Andy didn't have. Edie was somebody Andy wanted to be, and Edie, and Edie was so charismatic. It was the most charismatic woman he'd ever met, um, and Edie looked like a, a young boy so in many ways. So um, Andy emotionally really put himself out on a limb uh, went with Edie emotionally, in order to in order subconsciously I think to placate his mother. And so when Edie then sort of betrayed Andy with I put say that in quotes with Bob Dylan and ultimately Bobby Newmyer, if you want to get into the real details of what happened, um, he was so hurt because he put himself out on a limb emotionally that he completely not only cut her off but really became detached himself from it, almost everyone. And if you look, if you read his biographies, he's much more open with the media, much more open with his friends, even though he's still petulant and, and, and na a little nasty. But when, when after, Edie, after the whole incident with Edie in 66, he really becomes detached. It's not when he gets shot in 67, it's when Edie leaves the factory. Um, I've taken a lot of criticism by people who, uh, I mean, the film has gotten skewered by critics. I mean, we've gotten a few really nice reviews from people who matter, like Salon.com. Um, but we've gotten skewered. And I think a lot of critics um, who want to, I don't know, this is, I don't want to sound sour grapes, but a lot of critics who want to appear erudite to their New York literary, literati contemporaries, want to appear erudite, want to appear bright, will just sort of um, think about the most obvious, iconic views of Andy Warhol and will say, whoa, what did Hickenlooper do? He's portraying him as a high school, he's portraying Warhol and and eating this high school melodrama. But that's what it was. I was not interested in Andy or Edie in iconic terms or what their views on culture and, and their place in, 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 the, in, in postmodernism. I couldn't give a shit about that. Because when I read the script, I, could, I didn't care if the name was Edie or Andy. I was interested in this really intense love story between a gay man and a straight woman and how it becomes a love triangle. That's all I cared about. So I was only interested in telling the story in strictly in visceral terms, and I think I really accomplished that. And some critics get it, but most are like, want to sit on their high horse and say, well, you sort of, you're irreverent to Andy Warhol, you know, Edie Sedgwick. And it's like, I don't think about them in iconic terms. I think about them as humans first.
Yeah. Yeah. I think someone you captured that. And it was like, normally I feel like we get kind of a bird's eye view or a glorified view of that thing, but you got right in there. So you felt like, oh, I'm getting this from a, a person's perspective. Yeah. And I mean, down to his skin, his bad skin, you know, yeah. and I get that and I get the feeling that the, sure. what it must have been like there. And uh, so I think that that's hugely effective. And well, sometimes you're gonna get flack for doing that, I think. Well, also the other thing that's kind of ironic is to put reverence on these particular icons would just make them roll around in their graves laughing hysterically yeah. because it's the it was well, a whole sort of fight against that. It was sort exactly. of like, fuck you to that. And that's exactly, that's a good point. It's exactly all I was trying to make the film feel like their mood, like what what they were living. I wanted to, I didn't want it to be like your typical, you know, point A, point B, point C biopic. I wanted to feel like a Warhol party. I wanted to feel like a Warhol painting. I wanted to you know, work on the surface clearly, but I, I didn't. I didn't want to. I didn't want it to be. You know, walk the line. You know, I want, which is a great film. Into it's, it's a different kind of biopic. Yeah. You're only dealing with one year in their life, so um, so I think I did well by it. I mean, if you, you know, a lot of the you know Edie junkies, Edie and Andy junkies, just ripped me apart on the message boards. But you know, it's like you know, uh, I made the film for an audience that was interested in a great love story. Who might have some familiarity with Warhol and none with Edie? I wasn't interested in the verisimilitude of, you know, Edie's panty colors, you know, or you know what. I, that I was not, you know, the biggest criticism I get is the Bob Dylan criticism. You know, she, she had an affair with Bobby Newmar, which was uh, Dylan's right-hand man, but she did have an affair with Dylan. I've researched it. I've talked to the family. It happened. A lot of Dylan um, aficionados are offended by that, but it is what it is. So, Can you tell us how that came about in the in the movie. We don't hear a Bob Dylan's name, but yeah. you kind of you get the idea when you see him. He's got the microphone around his neck, and you kind of go, "Oh, that must be Bob yeah. Dylan." Why? Why is it? Is it because there were two people really that they kind of melded into one, or is there some no. kind of political thing? No, the, the reality is that with the original script, it was Bob Dylan. And, um, you know, for those who are just starting out to make films, if you want to make a biographical film, you can make a film about a, a dead person pretty easily um, if they're a public figure. Um, if they're a public figure, it's public domain. Um, if they're still living, you have some responsibility to... You can't... You can portray them in a way that's if you're dealing with facts that are known to the public, but if you're if you're dealing with like an affair or something that this person had, then you can't prove it, and it's hearsay. Then um, you are exposed legally to a lawsuit um, by that person. And so um, our lawyers, before we shot the film, um, we you have to get something called an errors and errors and omissions policy, which is basically an insurance policy for the movie. And in order for and you have to pay a fee of depending on the budget, it can be anywhere from a few thousand dollars to hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on the size of the budget, an insurance policy. So you just cross all your T's and dot all your I's and make sure that, you know, legally you're not exposed. So you have lawyers just go through the script, comb through the script, and they were like, Well, you can't call him Bob Dylan, um, unless you take out the affair and the love triangle, because that's you know, that's only hearsay. It wasn't you know, Bob Dylan never admitted to it. Of course he didn't admit to it he was married at the time he didn't admit, admit to a lot of his affairs but he's also known to have been a real philanderer so so we were like okay so we took bob dylan's name off and they said it's not good enough you've got to change him enough so it doesn't look like bob dylan so in order to get our errors and omission policy we you know we just change him to some irish like a 1960s young version of bono right and and so when i gave the script to hayden christensen hayden said yeah but i thought it was bob dylan and I said, well, it is, but the insurance company won't let us, you know, do that. And so we, so we just said, oh, that's cool, and kind of winked at each other. And then the insurance company signed off, and we uh, went into production. And then Hayden said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play him as Bob Dylan. And I said, great, you know, that's who it is. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, uh, and then, you know, the shit sort of hit the fan afterwards with Bob Dylan threatening to sue. Really? Yeah, so we so we played him as Bob Dylan. We just don't call him anything in the movie. You just <laughs> did you have to go back into the film and make sure that there was a, weren't any real Bob Dylan name dropping things like that. I noticed even when they showed an article about him, I, I don't even. I mean, it doesn't say Bob Dylan on it. No, it doesn't. It says musician or something. Yeah, no, we uh, uh, 
there were a few things we ADR'd, like there were a couple lines that Hayden was really, really, really Bob Dylan, but it was almost like it didn't quite work aesthetically. I mean, Hayden did a wonderful job, but we, so we just sort of pulled back a little bit. But otherwise, it's pretty much how we shot it. I just want to ask one thing about the actors on the set. Like if you're playing, if um, Guy Pierce is playing Andy Warhol, was he walking around like Andy Warhol the whole time? Or was he just going right into the scene and being Andy Warhol at for the scene and then walking out as Guy Pierce. No, I mean no, Guy Pierce isn't that isn't there's some actors who do that. That's rather pretentious. I no, he was Guy Pierce. Um, sometimes I wished he had stayed Andy Warhol uh, <laughs> when he walked off the set. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, Guy Pierce is really he's tremendous. He's a challenge to work with though because he's extremely demanding. Um, uh, well, all actors should be extremely demanding, but he's hyper, hyper in intense. In terms of what? In terms of um, walking he, and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, just in terms of he has very specific ideas about, you know, what the other actors should be doing. Um, and that at times became a challenge for Sienna and uh, some of us. Um, and I think Guy wants to direct, and he should direct because he's brilliant. Um, but so at times I had to, like, sort of say, whoa, let's, you know, um, but he's he's tremendous. He's a great he's a great actor, and certainly want to work with him again. And the real revelation for me is as good as Guy is with Sienna because um, Sienna Miller, when I cast her in the film, she was really just sort of tabloid, you know, fodder. She was Jude Law's girlfriend. Well, actually, when I when I auditioned her, I didn't really know anything about her at all. She's an Endeavor, the agency Endeavor. I'm at Endeavor, and at that point, I had been. Um, thinking about a lot of young girls for this picture. We auditioned Brittany Murphy, Jessica Biel, um, Mandy Moore. I met with Natalie Portman, Kate Hudson, uh, Scarlett Johansson. And um, there's so, such a rich pool of talent to choose from. And, and then I kept saying to myself, wouldn't it be exciting to like, get someone new and fresh to play Edie? Um, rather than you know, have you know, Natalie Portman as Edie Sedgwick. It'd just be exciting. And Holly Wiersma, the producer, agreed with me, and she's really wonderful with casting and very smart, has really good taste. What's her name? Holly Wiersma. Um, she also produced Bobby recently, and then Down in the Valley with Ed Norton. She's really in Wonderland. Excuse me. Really, really good. You can edit out burps if you want. Okay. Um, <laughs> but anyway, no, you don't have to. So, um, so. Uh, I was, uh, so we were, I was, Brittany had given a sensational audition. She, and Holly called me from the Venice Film Festival and said she just met this actress, Sienna Miller. I should check her out. She's, she might be a great Edie. And Sienna had been in Vogue, British Vogue, I think, in some layouts um, photo shoot. And I checked that out and said, oh, she just kind of looks like Edie. And, and then uh, thought, forgot about her. And then I was at a casting meeting in Endeavor. You know how those go. They, they basically bring in like 400 headshots of, you no, know. No, tell us exactly how that goes, because I really don't know. Oh, well, they're really. Um, you, you, you tell your agent that you're making this you film. You tell your agent you're making a film, and then the agency has to really believe you're making the film. And once they believe the movie's really happening, then you go, you have these meetings all over town, and, um, and they bring out basically books of headshots, like dozens and dozens and dozens. And they tell you like what this actor's actress is. And most of the, and in this case, they always bring out a few established actors, but they bring out, they're also trying to sell their unestablished actors. And because I was interested in Edie being maybe a fresh face, which would also make it more challenging to finance, because uh, you know it's always a name game when you're getting independent financing. I mean, I could go on for days talking about this, but um, anyways, so it was an endeavor, and they brought out a stack of headshots, and they spread them out, and I just remember this one shot of this, you know, blonde young girl, woman, young woman, with a sort of a sardonic, um, insouciant kind of smile, and I said, wow, she reminds me of this kind of same charisma, at least on, on paper, as Julie Christie. And I picked it up, flipped it over, and it was, oh, Sienna Miller. I remember her. It was Holly talking about her and looked at her. And I saw her credits, and she was just about to shoot Casanova with Lars Hallstrom. And she had done Keen Eddie. But that was the only thing. She's the one from Keen Eddie. Yeah. I liked that show. Yeah. Well, I, I, I wasn't familiar with the show at the time. It was the only thing they had of Sienna on tape. And uh, so they sent it over to me. And I watched it, and to be quite honest, I I was like, oh okay, this is okay, you know, it's you know, it doesn't blow me away. So I watched 
They sent me one of her scenes. And I don't think it was her best scene because it was just like she was okay. It was like, great, I'll, uh, oh well. Um, so I sort of, my mind started really sort of focusing on Brittany Murphy as a possibility because her audition was just sensational. And, um, and then. What scene did she audition with? She did three scenes. She did the scene where Andy meets Edie. She did the scene where um, Andy shoots Edie in Beauty Number Two, where he starts asking her all kinds of personal questions about her life. I don't remember the third scene, but there were three scenes. And uh, and then so a couple of months later, uh, we're trying to put the financing together. Um, Sienna is coming into town from London and wants to audition. I said, okay, fine. And uh, she auditioned. I remember this specifically. The audition was set for three o'clock, and I had to catch a plane to New York at six o'clock. So I had a car picking me up at three to take me to the airport. Um, and oh no, I had a car picking me up at three thirty. Three thirty, not three. So she's supposed to get there on time. And three rolls around, three fifteen rolls around, three thirty rolls around. My car's waiting for me. I call her agent, Scott Melrose, and I say, come on, I can't wait. I got to get on a plane. She goes, no, they got lost. They're, 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 she, she just landed at LAX from London. The driver's lost. I'm like, whatever. Really irritated. I'm literally about to leave, and she runs in the door smoking a cigarette, and she's completely discombobulated, disheveled, and she's, but she's so like incredibly self-effacing and so charismatic. She just, I'm completely blindsided. I literally like the breath is almost sucked out of my lungs i'm so like whoa this woman has so much presence and you you experience you don't experience that very often um usually it's like you meet an actress and it's very anticlimactic you know after you've seen their work but if here it was like my god she's larger than life she's bigger than her you know keenetti you know that was easy to say but she was just really blew me away and it was like okay let's see if she can act so he went into the room and i said forget it i'll just cancel my i'll just get, take a later flight and uh, she auditioned, and then she sat down, and um, and uh, she said, do you, mind, do you mind if I see the sides? I haven't had the time to even look at anything. And she was supposed to get the sides in London before they left. She left, and they didn't get that, get them to her, so she didn't, she didn't have anything. She was reading cold off the page. And I was like, okay. And she started reading, and I was, I just, she was so good. And I just realized, um, I was like, oh, my God, this girl is Edie. You know, she's discombobulated, disheveled, gorgeous to look at. And she read the three scenes, and I was so blown away. I've never in my career said this is right away. So I had to think about it. I mean, psh, that was it. And I got on the uh, got on the phone after the audition and said, Holly, she's it. And then it became a challenge of who's going to finance a movie with Sienna Miller. Uh, we got Guy Pierce, um, which made a difference. And then uh, and then you got we, him after. Yeah, but the linchpin for getting the financing was really Hayden Christensen. And they got us about seven million when we really needed about eight. Um, but uh, and we shot the film in Louisiana um, because of the, they have tax credits there. And I shot a lot of it in Shreveport right after Hurricane Katrina. Did you sell back? Did, did you sell back the credits, or how did that work out? You know, I don't really know how it works. I, I'm just told, and I just show up. <laughs> um, so you, you said that you shot a lot of this in Indiana. No, in Louisiana. Louisiana. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you wouldn't think of shooting yeah. this in Louisiana, yeah. uh, but I don't see why not. I mean, it all takes place, most of it, interior. Yeah. And then and then there are all kinds of rumors, oh, the movie's in trouble. We're we have, we have doing reshoots, and that's not the case. When we shot the film, as I said, we needed $8 million. I had to cut the I had to cut 15 pages out of the script. So what I did was I cut out, it was a big gamble, but I cut out scenes that were essential to the movie that you couldn't finish the film without them. Well... <laughs> 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 and um, and no one re- and, and and no one realized that until uh, you know the the end because Harvey bought the Harvey Weinstein bought the film at Sundance but he's bought it on based on the dailies but he didn't know I had these three essential scenes that I had to shoot in New York which I which I cut out and they're easy to cut out because I couldn't shoot them in Shreveport anyway and there was no money to shoot them anyway so I just cut them and so I when I presented my director's cut there were like these big scenes missing you know cards <laughs> and harvey was like where are these scenes and i said well we have to shoot them and you know he flipped out for a day and uh and but then he was fine and so we but we had to get the cast together and we didn't end up shooting those until november of last year and then harvey was big on trying to get a nomination for sienna but there just wasn't enough time i mean we didn't actually 
we actually wrapped our last day of the additional shoots. Um, we shot 30 additional pages, not just three scenes, because Harvey had his ideas too, which were good. And uh, we wrapped December 11th and had to get the Academy screeners out by the 20th. So I had four days to cut in 30 new pages. Uh, now tell me how um, Harvey got involved. How did this happen with the... So at Sundance, you presented a cut? Or no, I didn't. Um, um, Harvey, um, Holly Wearsmith, the producer, um, had another movie with Harvey Weinstein called Bobby, which Emilio Estevez directed. And Harvey and Holly have a great relationship, and um, Holly's just a fantastic producer, really knows how to play the, you know, the finance game and basically showed him the dailies and he bought it there. Yeah, and then he didn't know what he was buying until, you know, he saw the director's cut, which everyone liked, but it had these scenes missing, you know, and... Um, what is it like working with Harvey as far as um, the final cut goes? Was it... Um, does he put a pretty heavy hand on what the final cut is like? Uh, yes, absolutely. Harvey is very much involved. Um, Harvey uh, Harvey was very passionate about this movie, so I saw Harvey every day. I was in the cutting room every day. But he did not lock me out of the process. He does that to a lot of directors. He brought me to New York, put me up in a really nice apartment in Manhattan, had me there for three months in the cutting room. Um, he, all the final decisions were his, um, ultimately. Um, but I would say, um, overall, there were some bu real bumps in the road that were hard for me. Um, but in the end, uh, I quite... What were the bumps in the road? Um, I think he cut more out of the movie than I wanted to. Um, I felt like there was more backstory on Edie that we could have had in the picture, which I shot. Um, but Harvey, you know, because it's a character piece, Harvey was concerned about time. I think in the end, I was right, because I think we, some of our criticism was that there wasn't enough of that. About the fluffy or fuzzy? The fuzzy. <laughs> the father figure, yeah. yeah. There's a, enough backstory, but... Um, in the end, I'm like 90% satisfied with the movie. I, you know, I would say that 75% of the film is mine, 25% is definitely Harvey's. Um, was not a big fan of the voiceover, but Harvey is. Harvey, you know, Harvey's the guy who tells Marty Scorsese how to cut his movies. So, I mean, it's like I didn't, you know, so I just went along, I had to go along with it, and I did, and I certainly made the best out of it. And I learned a lot from Harvey Weinstein. He really is really br brilliant. And the people who work with him, Matt Landon, Carla Gardini, Michelle Crum, all really smart. He works with, and Harvey is very temperamental. He's huge temper, can be very sweet. Um, he's all over. He's very bipolar. Um, but in the end, he has a big heart. Um, and uh, I believe he has a big heart. And, uh, and the people he works with are very even-tempered, very smart. Colin Vane's this British guy. From HBO? He used to be at HBO, I think. I worked with him when we did the... John Frankenheimer movie back in, in the early 90s. Yeah, yeah, he's a great guy. Works with the best, he has the best people around him. And it can be frustrating Harvey at times, but um, you know, he you know, single-handedly probably saved American independent cinema in the 90s and with Miramax, and uh, he's very passionate. He really is kind of an Irving Thalberg, and I have the utmost respect for him, and I'd work with him again in a second if I had the chance. I'm sure you will, though. Yeah, well, we've got, we're talking about doing something else. So. George, I want to ask you about, um, you mentioned something about film school and your thoughts on film school, sure. and I wanted to find out, how did you prepare yourself to be a, the director that you are today? I mean, we've heard a lot of, you know, your history as far as that goes, and also your thoughts on film school. Sure. Um, well, if you want to sort of um, experience what I went through, I did a, a, a small film that I'm still very proud of. I think it's one of my best films right after Sling Blade, called The Low Life. Um, and it's uh, one of Renee Zellweger's first films. It's the one about the, the Yaleys who hang yeah. out in the bar and, yeah. and complain or something. Yeah. <laughs> I read the little thing on the Blockbuster video. Yeah, uh, yeah tell it's us basically about disengruntled just college grads um, who want to be in the film business <laughs> and uh, are aspiring, and what they're really lacking is life experience. Um, and so they struggle. So that sort of captures my, you know... Uh, my my malaise in that particular my melancholy in that particular time in my life um, but I'm glad I did what I did I think I took the right path um, I think um, film school particularly now it's certainly in my view and no disrespect to teachers who I have all that my father's professor who work hard to teach their craft from the perspective of someone who's young I think film schools have become kind of a sham um, they, they no longer, in my view, and speaking in broad terms, 
they no longer sort of represent what they were when Spike Lee went there and Marty Scorsese when there were very few of them and um, they're very competitive and you just had a lot of um, you, you had a lot of passion now they've just sort of become factories um, and and what I notice because I lecture at USC occasionally and I've been to NYU to lecture what I notice is the students most of them are how do I get a deal how do I get an agent how do I get a studio deal and a lot of the student films you see now uh, aren't really made from a real solid individual point of view they're made to sort of pander or cater to what they feel a studio might like or an agent might like I think you see a lot of films at Sundance like that now too the films that are sort of made for distributors rather than made for audiences or made from the heart I think when films were made you know by you know young Scorsese or you know young uh, Spike Lee you know what was that Spike Lee film something Barbershop We Cut Heads Oh, I that know. student film at NYU, fantastic. Uh, just really strong points of view. Uh, I think when that came out of film school, it was fantastic. But now I think, um, I don't know, film schools have become, I think there's some good film schools. Like, I think it's, if you want to be a screenwriter, I think it's great if it really forces you to sit in a room and really focus on writing and getting great feedback. I think film school for screen, particularly Columbia University, it's fantastic. But as far as like USC and AFI and NYU, um, and I applied to all of them and I got into all of them, but I turned them all down. And actually, I got rejected by AFI, but I turned them all down. For Kinko's. For, well, because I actually got a job directing my documentary on Peter Bogdanovich. Oh. And actually, after I graduated and I moved out here, I, I thought about, uh, I was like getting frustrated at Kinko's. So I, I applied to film school and got in, and then I got the, the Bogdanovich film. I said, well, just I'd rather make money and learn how to do it. And so that's when I earlier I said the first part of my career has been film school. It really literally was for me. But I just think it's become kind of a factory in an industry. And they're just there are film schools now in Florida, you know, Los Angeles Film School, USC, UCLA, New York Academy, NYU. They're all just there. Basically, you have kids coming out of high school. First of all, if you're young, if you're young, 18 and you're in high school, Go and get a fucking liberal arts education. Go to a really good liberal arts school. It doesn't have to be an Ivy League school. Just go study history, study literature, study art history, study science, study things that you can draw from. You know, what you're seeing now are young kids going a lot of the time going to film school, and they don't have any life experience, so they're just making movies that imitate other movies or that they think will sort of pander to... They're just they're, they're so vacant and so shallow, and, and the quality, and that's why the quality has really gone down. And it's like go to college, then go to travel Europe or Asia for a year, join the Peace Corps, come back to filmmaking when you're mid to late twenties. You don't really have anything to say until you're in your late twenties anyway. I wish, in a way, I had waited until I was older, you know, to have really have something to say. But everybody wants to. Everybody wants. It's like young people. It's like gotta sound like an old man now. <laughs> <laughs> scary but it's like young people they want the lifestyle of the filmmaker but they don't want to necessarily be the filmmaker you know what I'm saying they want to wear the cool uh, what's that guy who did Clerks Kevin, Kevin Smith. Smith they want the cool Kevin Smith hiking boots you know and the silent bob trench coat and they want the cool Steven Spielberg baseball cap but they they don't really have anything to say yet so if you're young, there's plenty of time. I was eager and you know, antsy when I was young, but there's plenty of time. Learn about the world and read books. And then come back to it. And don't go to film school. You know, go to your, if you're going to spend, what, $30,000, dollars $50,000 a year on film school, borrow that money from your parents, borrow from a bank, I don't know, rob a liquor store, and make your own film and see if you're good. And try to get into a film festival like Austin or Sundance or Toronto. And then... And that that should be your film school. Do it yourself. Any any monkey, chimpanzee can learn how to direct a movie in a day. Seriously, it's just like cross the imaginary line. If you want to be a director and a filmmaker, you don't need to learn how the intricacies of a camera. You don't need to learn what a key light is. I mean, you'll learn that eventually. Learn how to tell a story, and that's what's fundamentally lacking in film today. Is really, I mean, this guy, what's his name, who wrote uh, Little Miss Sunshine. 
smart guy. Mm. He, he was Matthew Broderick's assistant for a long time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think his writing is he spent, he, he's in his early 30s, spent 10 years like working for Matthew, traveling around, learning about theater. Um, and it really reflected in, in Little Miss Sunshine. He said something which I think was very profound. He said, you know, a lot of movies today are just really about other movies. That trend really started with when Spielberg and Lucas came on the scene with Jaws and Star Wars. Those movies were about other movies. Jaws was about other B-movies. Star Wars was about other B-movies. Movies became about movies. And they stopped having singular voices like what happened to Bob Rafelson, what happened to the Five Easy Pieces, what happened to the King of Marvin Gardens, what happened to the Tulane Blacktops, Last Picture Shows, Midnight Cowboys, what happened to that kind of filmmaking in America? What's well, gone? I mean, it's really, it's, not, it's still there. Well, wait, wait, though, because let's talk about a movie like Tarnation, for instance. Yeah, I didn't see Tarnation. You should see that. Or Is that a documentary? It's sort of, but it's not really. But it's, there are exceptions. It's very interesting. But I'm talking about the mainstream. You're talking oh. about sort of films that are on the margins. Now, the films that were great in the, you know, in the golden age of Hollywood cinema, the last golden age, the 70s, were the mainstream. Those were the mainstream. Those movies oh, they, are now on the fringes now. Right. Are those kinds of movies. I mean, there and there are. Don't you think a lot of that has to do with the way the budgets have gone so so high up that it I, has to appeal to no, the lowest common denominator, or you can't make your money back? There's not one easy answer to that question. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that you're benefited benefited by the fact that you did documentaries first, or did documentaries particularly on directors, great direct, two great directors? Do you think that that gave you a certain perspective that has helped you make your more narrative films? I, yes, I think it's helped me. I think it's certainly because you really, I mean, what's great about documentaries uh, as opposed to narrative filmmaking, I mean, narrative filmmaking is always based on other traditions in art, theater, uh, art history, music. Documentaries really is um, pure cinema. It's you're, you're taking raw cinema footage and you're telling a story with that. It's not scripted. It's nothing. And so in that way, I think with documentaries, you really have to exercise your mind in a way where really you really have to learn storytelling or it teaches you storytelling. So yes, documentary filmmaking has helped me tremendously. It's hurt me in a way too because, I mean, Factory Girl, I treated very much like a documentary. So a lot of it, I mean, I think some people feel that Factory Girl feels more like a pastiche than a narrative film because it sort of really deals with um, eating Andy's um, a relationship on a very superficial level but that was intentional because they lived very superficial existences when it comes to the darker side of it I, do I get into the I delve into the sort of the family history more so it's helped me and it, it's helped me more than it's hurt me it, hurt, it can hurt you a little bit because I mean people go to a narrative film with certain expectations they, they think they're seeing a narrative so they have it in their mind that they're seeing they don't want to see a narrative that looks like a documentary which is what Factory Girl is I mean in a way I feel like Factory Girl looked beautiful though there were some things that you did with it that I felt were sort of speaking to the fact that we were dealing with the art world yeah well that was deliberate um yes absolutely and thank you it did look beautiful but in terms of how the story was told I think a lot of people um confused the cinema verite look of the film with just bad camera work <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I anyway, did, I didn't. I, I really yeah, saw that as done very specifically. Oh, cool. Um, so yeah. So in terms of, um, and then the question you asked in terms of like, um, I don't know how long we've been talking. Actually, an hour. Um, it's pretty long. Um, <laughs> I'll wrap it up. But in terms of, you'd asked me to say, you know, for a young filmmaker, what um, if if you know if you're going to embark on a project, what is the most important thing you should look out for, and that is the script, the script, the script make sure the script is 100% of what you think it can be. And even when you think it's great, have everyone else you respect read it and be open to criticism. Don't second-guess yourself, but just really the art. You know, Mark Twain said, I believe Mark Twain said, the art of writing is rewriting. And don't feel like just because you've written one draft in your mind it's great, that necessarily it is. You, you really need to spend time on it and make sure it's the best it can be because um, if it's not, you can't fix it in the cutting room. Great. So that's that's your film bite. We're we're at the end here. Thanks a lot, George, oh, for, for being here. Did you, Kamala, have a film bite that you wanted to say? Um, 
No, I mean, I, I think one thing that, that I've learned from George and from his story again, and it's the same thing that I actually learned from Bruce Cohen, which is very interesting because both of you came out here with no connections. And both of you started at a, you know, what people would call a very low level. But there were there are two things that seem to come into it. One is um, perseverance, and the other is um, a sort of dedication to doing the job excellently. And the combination of those two things has put bo you both, you know, on, on the map, per se, in a very competitive industry. And, well, I think being, being bright is, is, is a plus oh. as well. Yeah, sometimes I wish I had a little bit of a lobotomy or something. It might have been much more successful. <laughs> but no, I'm happy with my career. I'm doing... Uh, what getting, are you doing now? I'm uh, uh, this producer, Todd Trena, um, who just produced um, um, uh, Grace is Gone, the John Cusack film that sold at Sundance. And then this other fellow, um, Chris Ebert, who just produced Lucky Number 11 for Harvey. Um, they've optioned a book for me um, called um, Morning Spy, Evening Spy by Colin McKinnon. And I'm going to adapt the screenplay from the novel. And it's a, a wonderful story about a broken down CIA agent whose marriage is falling apart, who's lost his son, who um, makes it his mission to hunt down an Islamic extremist in order to sort of mend his own internal fragmented life. And it's a great metaphor for what's going on in our country. Um, and um, it's uh, it's kind of a smart man's born supremacy, but it's it's not an action spy film. It's more of a character driven spy film. But it's something that uh, Sean Penn lately has become a big fan of mine. So I'm writing it with him in mind, and he's interested in reading it once it's done. So so we'll see what happens. Fingers crossed. Yeah. That would be awesome. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for having me. Thanks. For I'm gonna coming. go out and get Camilla cigarettes now. <laughs> I quit smoking. Yay. Yeah. All right, thank you very much, George, and um, we'll see everyone next week. <laughs>